Candid Catholic Convos, a program brought to you by the Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg. Our mission is to humanize the church and help you to grow in your faith, love, and understanding. I'm your host, Rachel Trochet, a cradle Catholic who's only human and struggled with faith on more than one occasion. Each week, you'll hear engaging, down-to-earth interviews and actionable strategies you can implement into your life with ease to help you grow closer to God. If you're ready to open your heart and step fully into the person God created you to be, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Candid Catholic Convos. In the world of radio, it's rare you ever see the face behind the voice. And unless you follow us on social media, which you should, you wouldn't know very much about me or what I look like if I didn't tell you. Hi, I'm Rachel, a white woman with Italian, Irish, and Norwegian roots. My hair is brown, I'm average height, and lately I've been wearing my glasses a lot more, like I'm supposed to because my eyes are terrible. I met my husband in college in Philadelphia. He's a Puerto Rican man with dark hair and a rich complexion. Our three boys are beautiful. They're what a casting director would call racially ambiguous because they can pass for both Hispanic and Caucasian, as well as several other nationalities. I had never been exposed to Puerto Rican culture or style or music or anything before meeting my husband. And for the last decade, I've been absolutely immersed in it. It's vibrant, romantic, and flavorful, just like my heritage that I've embraced my entire life. I can't wait to shower my kids in theirs and show them all the things that make them uniquely them. But if I'm being honest, I know not everyone in this world will find them unique. I've witnessed firsthand how I am sometimes treated differently than my husband, and I wish I could say it was just because I'm a woman. I've sat at a restaurant with my in-laws who speak Spanish and watched others get up to move while glaring at us for taking up space. I've heard neighbors shout obscenities at my husband while he's mowing the lawn, only to salute him later when they see him in his military uniform. I've had strangers comment on my social media telling me my children were quasi-American and that they should go back to where they came from. And it breaks my heart. Year over year, the Hispanic population in central Pennsylvania grows, creating vibrant communities in York and Adams counties. And if you watch the news, they'll tell you this is a bad thing that the things that make us different are things to be feared. The reality is we're much more alike than we think. Today, I'm joined via Zoom by Father Michael Rotan, the Spanish Apostolate of Hanover, to talk about what makes his ministry unique and to share with us all the ways the Catholic faith can be made beautiful in different cultures. Father Rotan, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. So tell me a little bit about yourself and and how you kind of got into the priesthood. I grew up in South Central Pennsylvania, grew up in Strasburg, a small town in Lancaster County, and uh, Catholic school, 12 years, St. Anthony of Padua, which which is now a resurrection school, and then Lancaster Catholic, graduated in 1991. So I I pretty much knew um, or had a feeling at least all my life that I was being called to the priesthood. I was raised by the Redemptress there at St. Anthony's. And so that was my only real uh, image of a priest growing up. And and they were really um, important in that formation of all of us, actually. 
So I've been toying with it for a while. I ended up going on to college um, and after college teaching science and taught at a high school, taught at uh, an elementary school, middle school for two years. And then finally kind of said, listen, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it now. And I, I went in the seminary at the recommendation of a, um, a priest who had been with me all my life. And he said, you know, I, I know you, I know you've been doing this, you know, thinking about this for a long time. So just give it a shot. And if it doesn't work out or you hate it, then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Just go on with your life. But if you love it, that's where you need to be. And so uh, I entered in, went to St. Vincent uh, Seminary in Latrobe. I was there for five years and then ordained a priest in 2004 for the Diocese of Harrisburg. That's really cool. That's quite the journey. So I understand that you are a Spanish apostolate. And I have no idea what that means. So could you kind of expand on that for me? What does it mean to be a Spanish apostolate? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what does that mean? It's a good question because um, when Bishop originally called me, I was at Bucknell for three and a half years before I had this assignment. Prior to Bucknell, I had been a Spanish pastor twice over. So when he called me and he said, I need you to go down to Hanover for the Spanish apostolate. That's what I asked. What is that? Like, what does that even mean? What is your vision here? And it took a while for both of us um, to articulate what is the vision. So basically what an apostolate is, um, whereas you have a parish that might be defined by a particular group of people that stay in the same area, they're connected to a patron, you know, St. Joseph, for instance, or what have you. The apostolate is more territorial. So it's, it's ministering to a specific community within a, a large territory. For example, ministering to the Latinos here in this area, we have St. Joseph, we have St. Vincent, Annunciation, we have Immaculate Heart. We have Sacred Heart in Kanawha. We have, you know, St. Francis Xavier, the next one over in Gettysburg, is a Spanish-English parish. Um, so we have a number of churches that operate within this large population that is linked by language and culture. So the apostolate is essentially taking care of their spiritual needs I mean, I, I, you know, for the novena, the nine days of prayer leading up to Guadalupe, the nine days of prayer leading up to Christmas, Las Posadas, um, I was as far as Spring Grove, you know, as far north as Spring Grove. I was in, you know, uh, Dover, near York. I was in Abbottstown, New Oxford, Littlestown. So all these areas surrounding and those individuals are coming to St. Joseph for Mass. So the, the main thing with the apostolate is St. Joseph is not necessarily their parish. St. Joseph is the location where we celebrate mass. And, and that's what draws everyone there. So the ultimate goal of any apostolate, I would think to a certain extent, especially dealing with the culture, is eventually where they are celebrating their sacraments will become um, a multilingual parish. And that's, you know, so for any of these churches um, around the diocese, many of them probably started as a Spanish apostolate. And then eventually they became, you know, kind of 
brought into the parish, incorporated into the parish community, and then it's a bilingual community. So that, I mean, ultimately, that's the goal here. Ultimately, um, this community will become a part of a parish. And so you have so many parishes that are bilingual, there's a certain distance between them. So the goal is to make it not overburdensome if they want to attend a mass in Spanish. Now, the argument often comes up, why don't they just learn English? And for, for many of, I mean, I can tell you learning Spanish, um, I was never formally trained in Spanish. If you have any question about this, ask the people I minister to. They'll tell you I wasn't trained because, you know, my Spanish is not polished by any stretch. Um, but there's something about, regardless of whether you know English or not, there's something about worshiping in your culture. It's a different type of worship um, to a certain extent. It's still Catholic and, and all the elements of the Mass are there, but um, there are different elements that are specifically Hispanic or other cultural. So regardless, and we are the church. I mean, if you go back to the history of the Americas, uh, there were different models of catechesis or trying to get the native peoples to convert. And the most successful model uh, of the French Jesuits up in the Hurons was learning the Huron language first, and then they could catechize the people. As opposed to the Jesuits down in the Spanish community that kind of created mission towns and said, okay, you're going to learn our language and then we'll teach you the faith. I mean, it just, it was a disaster. So uh, among the Hispanic community, regardless of whether they're going to learn English in their job or in, you know, being in this country, there's always going to be a Spanish mass because that's home. That, that's, that's what they were brought up with. That's their culture. I want to piggyback off of something you said, because I found it very unique about how, yes, it's the mass and, you know, the the traditional roots are still there, but there's something inherently different about how Hispanic culture celebrates mass or like how Italian culture celebrates mass or the things that are involved with their faith. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I know you mentioned um, the Novena for Guadalupe. Um, and some of the other traditions that are a little bit more present than they are in other churches. Yeah, and and there is a difference. Uh, when I was pastor at the other church, uh, it was a mixture of, of Mexican, Puerto Rican, Guatemalan, Colombian. You had any number of, of mixed groups. You know, sometimes you just think they're Spanish and they're all the same. You know, and and there are many. Very you know, it's like saying a person is Asian. Well, there's many different types of people from the East. So here in Hanover, it's to a large part Mexican, mm. which is very. I hate to say it, but it's very helpful because you're dealing with one culture for the most part. If you're in a church where I have been, and you have all these different Latino cultures, they each have their image of the Blessed Mother. They each have the way they celebrate certain feasts and stuff. And so sometimes, you know, it, it gets to be difficult, if not a, a bit of a conflict. But here, for instance, uh, um, many of our funerals occur at night, which doesn't seem practical, but it is because many of the people I minister to work. They work all day or they work the graveyard shift. And so an evening funeral is when everyone can be there and they want everyone to be there. They want the choir to be there. They want it to be, you know, um, 
Our masses on Sunday are usually an hour and a half. And that's just a given. It's funny because in many um, communities that are non-Hispanic communities, um, typical of our diocese, sometimes people leave after communion. Now, they might come early, but they leave after communion. They're in a hurry to get out of there. Um, in the community here, we call it the loaves and the fishes. Like when I'm getting ready to go up for the entrance procession, the church is half empty. And I'm wondering where everyone is. By the time I get up to the front and we're doing the collect, everyone's there. It's full. So they trickle in late. And, and sometimes I give them a little bit of an issue about it. But they, they trickle in late. But there's no hurry to get out of there. So at Mass, so for instance, even this weekend at Mass, uh, we had a baptism during the Mass. We had a renewal of vows at the end for a couple that was celebrating 25 years. Then there was a presentation of a child that hasn't been baptized yet. They bring the child, you know, we hold up the baby, everyone claps, and there's a blessing and um, different things like that. And, and so you have these things and sometimes they're scheduled and sometimes they're not. Um, but it's the community coming together and everyone loves it. And then we do the birthday blessings, of course, and, and all these little extras. Um, if, if there's a death, they pray nine days after the death occurs in the person's home. If there is a feast day coming up, whether it's Christmas or Guadalupe or Three Kings Day, whatever it is, um, they have novenas in the homes. And even over Guadalupe, we had seven different prayer groups go out to a different home every night for nine days where people were gathered. You think about the number of people, the hundreds of people who were impacted. Um, we recently had a retreat and it was actually their first parish retreat. And in speaking to them, I asked, what kind of retreat do you want? Because I give retreats, you know, we can do this. And they asked for a retreat where someone in each of the different groups of the church gives a testimony, a witness which is very powerful about why they're Catholic, why they're involved in the church, why the Eucharist is important to them. And on the other side of that, at, at the same parish, you know, I talked to the pastor, we work very closely together and he said, well, we'll do a retreat too. So we had simultaneous retreats where we joined each other for lunch. We joined each other for a holy hour confessions and mass, which was beautiful. It was bilingual. But for his retreat that he gave, it was a standard retreat that, you know, I would give, where we give a couple of talks, they have time for quiet, and they have time for those things. So there's a difference right there that maybe within the non-Hispanic community, there is not that, um, you know, tendency to want to give a witness. Whereas in the, the Latino community, they're used to that. They're used to giving a witness and, and expressing themselves in that way. That's beautiful. And I love what you said about the birthday blessing. It makes a lot of sense because when my husband and I got married, we got married in the Diocese of Philadelphia in this church called St. Patrick's in Norristown. Mm -hmm. And in Norristown, it is a very heavily Hispanic community. And when we pulled up to the church, there was a quinceanera just finishing up. Um, and like you said, they were in, in no hurry to get out of the church. And I was, I didn't care. I was so full of love that day. I was like, they can stay, <laughs> tell them. And, and it was cute because right. our, my husband is Hispanic. 
What is what is his nationality? He's Puerto Rican. He's, he's Puerto Rican. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> but he's on he's a little bit of a um his complexion is darker for most mm -hmm. Puerto Ricans. And uh the family that was having the quinceanera, they were Mexican, and our photographer just knew that my husband was Hispanic. So they thought that the family that was there for the quinceanera was part of the wedding. Oh my god. <laughs> so we have pictures in I didn't put them in the album, but in our like digital files, there's pictures of random Mexican children um that they thought was there <laughs> for our wedding. So it's a great story. I love that. Uh -huh. story. <laughs> it is. And also that, you know, um the flexibility. So I I like to plan. I I don't like surprises and, and it it kind of puts me on edge when people say Hey, listen, I'll fake it till I make it, or we're going to wing it. I don't wing anything, but when things happen, that are not expected. I can be flexible. I think sometimes people have an idea of flexibility. It means I'm flexible. I just don't plan and hope it goes well. That's not flexible. That's just not planning. Right. But with, with what I found with this community too, for instance, I can't, it's rare that I can plan something directly after Sunday mass. Um, even this weekend we had a penance service and I kind of, you know, speeded things up again at the end of mass to make sure I got there because they also do all their business at that time. So on their way out of the church for better or for worse, I think it's a benefit, but, um, the, the Spanish community at St. Joe's, they pick up their hymnal as they walk into the church. And then when we're done with mass, they put the hymnal back on the shelf Whereas for the non-Hispanic community there, they just leave their hymnals in the pews and they're just always there. The benefit of it is they all have to put their hymnals back on the shelf, which means they all leave through one door, which means I get to see all of them. They all pass me. They all, uh, Padre, una pregunta, you know, I got a question or I, I need something or, and this is when I get all my appointments. A lot of my business happens after that Sunday mass because they're all there and the kids are all there. And so, um, I think that too, they're not in a hurry to leave. They'll hang out there forever, but also a flexibility. Um, and sometimes we have to reel that in a little bit. Um, you know, we might have kids every now and then who are wandering. And if they're wandering several times into the sanctuary, I mean, it could be dangerous. There's heavy candles and stuff, but it also becomes a distraction. And so just to be able to, to say to the, the parents, you know, privately, could you just keep an eye on them better? And people are very receptive to that. You know, they're, they, they don't want to, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I didn't mean that. And, um, but for the most part, um, it's, it's a familial, it's a familial community where, you know, it takes a village to raise a child sort of thing, which is very nice. So what kind of other challenges and rewards have you noticed with this type of ministry? I think some of the challenges is I live at one place. I live at one church. I, I have mass and the sacraments at another church, and then I'm working within the community at large. So it, it, it's kind of hard. Um, I don't really have a home base per se. Whereas if you're in the parish, you have a home base you know what facilities you have. And um, so to that extent, that can be challenging at times because we have to schedule around other things happening. So that's a, that's a challenge. 
it's a challenge um, as far as getting in touch with people because many are, of them are not registered and they won't register. So whereas some, you know, a secretary or even a pastor could look on a database, find out where someone lives and go to their house or call them, it's much more difficult uh, for me to do that. It usually happens through another person uh, and then to, um, you know, to, to get sacramental information sometimes is a challenge. I have to admit what I used to do is if I needed a baptismal certificate or something from Mexico or Puerto Rico or anywhere, I would, I would put a $10 bill in the envelope and it just helped the process. I hate to say it, but it helped the process and you get it back. Nowadays with everything electronic, email's a lot easier and people do sometimes respond, but I still, you know, it's, it's like pulling teeth sometimes to get some of those, those things that you need. Um, with respect to the intermixing of religion. So among the community here, you, you, I mean, you, you obviously have Catholicism and then you have other Christian religions. You have the Pentecostal, you have the evangelical, but then you also have Santeria, you have Santa Muerte, you have the Bruja, you know, the witchcraft and stuff like that. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to explain this to people and you might have to caution your, your audience if there are children present, but the way some of them look like this, look at this, is the way we look at Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. I mean, think about a Catholic saying, yes, and then we put, you know, these baskets out for this imaginary bunny to come. Well, that sounds like witchcraft to me. If I don't know anything about the, you know, or Santa Claus, this elf coming in um, and doing all these things, that sounds like some kind of other religion. So a lot of times they look at these things like that. Yes, I'm Catholic. But I also go to the natural healer when I need something. Or I also do, you know, offer a sacrifice to Santa Muerte just to make sure I cover all my bases and stuff. And so it, it, in educating them on some of those things, they've been receptive to it. Sometimes they'll say, we never knew this. We're happy that we know this now, although we don't like the consequences because now we can't do that stuff anymore. <laughs> And then those who don't want to hear it just won't hear it. So there is that. That is a challenge, certainly. And then the challenge that we all face, even within the church, uh, you mentioned the quinceañera. The quinceañera has become more, more about a party and less of about, you know, a rite of passage for a woman. If you're in a rancho in Mexico and that girl is 15, she'll be married in the next year or two. And she will stay in that rancho the rest of her life. She'll raise children. Um, the, the husband will work outside the rancho or whatever. That's all they're going to do. They're not going to go to higher education or anything else. So that makes sense, really. In the rancho, this is a rite of passage. She is going to be a woman. She's going to have responsibilities. And for a number of the, uh, the Mexicans that I deal with here, these kids are not nearly ready to be a mother or a parent or a responsible adult. And so, but it is about the party. And for the parents, it's about the tradition. And there's a mix there. Uh, I got pushback. I said, if they wanted a mass, the girl had to be confirmed. Because if she's going to be considered an adult in the church, she should have all of her sacraments of initiation. It just makes sense. And so for some parents, there was this mad scramble to get her confirmed. Just. 
so they could have the mass. And it doesn't make sense. So I said, well, we can still have a consignor per service, but I want them confirmed. It's funny because in Mexico, their policies are more strict than mine. Hmm. They, they require you go to so many masses a year. Like they, they have a pre-sign that you've been to this many masses and, and stuff. Um, so I don't feel so bad about that, but it is. And that's part of the cultural thing. You know, the struggle with the culture. Among the people here, they're probably where we were in the 1950s as far as our religion. We all went to church. There was not much happening on Sunday. So we had family day. We had a Sunday dinner or whatever. And, and that's where they are. I mean, the church is the center of their life. For many of the kids, the kids don't want to be that. They're kind of, they want to be more American. They want to be less Mexican or Hispanic. And um, so there is really a, uh, a struggle for parents and grandparents trying to hold on to the culture and trying to keep their children from being infected uh, by a secular culture. That is just, that is fascinating. And, and I can, I can absolutely see how some of those challenges would be difficult to work through, but it sounds like, it sounds like your um, community is fairly receptive, you know, whether or not they agree with all of it, they, they, it sounds like they're receptive. So I kind of want to address the elephant in the room of racism, especially when it comes to our brothers and sisters who look different than us. Like I said, my husband is Hispanic. He's from Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And he's told me that unless he's wearing his military attire, um, he feels very out of place in central Pennsylvania. He's originally from northern New Jersey, which is also very heavily Hispanic because a lot of the people around here don't look like him or sound like him. And I was taught racism goes against everything I know as a Catholic. You know, all human beings are made in God's image and likeness. But unfortunately, in this day and age, not everyone is aware of that, nor does it alleviate my husband's or my neighbor's feelings of being uncomfortable or, or of alienation or discrimination. So my question is kind of twofold. Is this something that you encounter in your ministry of addressing that outsider feeling and how can those of us who haven't experienced that feeling of alienation walk with those who do? Hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good question. I think words are important and defining words. I mean, you know, if you control the, the narrative, you can control people. I think we've seen that in more ways than one. With respect to racism, you know, believing that someone is less than I am because of who they are. I, I mean, I think that's racism. We've unfortunately run out of time, but if you'd like to hear the rest of this episode, you can listen to us anytime on Spotify under Candid Catholic Convos, or you can download this episode from our website at hbgdiocese.org. Thank you so much for listening. Our goal at the Diocese of Harrisburg is to walk with you on your faith journey. So if this episode resonated with you in any way, the easiest way to show your appreciation is by sharing this program with your network or by leaving a review on your listening platform. You can also support us financially by making a donation online at hbgdiocese.org slash D-A-C and clicking the make a donation button. Thanks again, and we'll see you at church on Sunday.